That can be found on page 785, if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you. Anybody here heard a sermon on the book of Habakkuk before? Raise your hands. Seven. Great. Well, it's in there. Habakkuk, page 785, towards the back of your Old Testament. What would be your superpower of choice? So maybe you would be a, a shape shifter like Camillo from Encanto. Maybe it would be the, the power to fly like Superman, the man of steel. Maybe it would be the power to generate fire or to move at superhuman speed. Maybe you would teleport or time travel or see with x-ray vision. We've also, whether it's when you're a kid, whether you are a kid, maybe you're an adult now, maybe you daydream in the same way, but we've all daydreamed of having some special power. But the truth is, is that most of us as believers, we have trouble enough living with the God-given power that we do have. So think about it. According to the Bible, what power do we as believers actually have? So we cannot fly, we cannot teleport, we cannot see with x-ray vision, but what we can do is we can hear. God has given every believer the power to hear God's voice in the Bible and believe it. So in this age in which we live, we may not have every gift we like, but we have every gift that we need. And that's because we do not live in the age of the eye, but we live in the age of the ear. So think about it. When you, when you come to the Bible to learn how it is that we're being called to live out this Christian life, would you say that we're being asked to live and pray and make decisions based mainly on what we see to be true? Or are we to live and pray and make decisions based on what we have heard to be true? Are we to live by sight, by the power to see, or are we to live by faith, the power to hear and believe? I bring this up because now and then in another few weeks, we're going to take a couple of breaks from 2 Corinthians to spend some time in a few minor prophets. And this is why we find ourselves in the book of Habakkuk this morning. So there are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, you should know. Note that minor in this sense doesn't mean less significant in the Bible. It just means that they're shorter. So you have major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, books like that. And then you have minor prophets that are shorter. So like me, in a sense, I'm, not, I'm a minor preacher, okay? So not less significant, but definitely shorter, okay? But what's interesting is that even among the minor prophets, this book, is unique because when you come to this book, what you don't get is a is a prophet, excuse me, is a prophet standing, receiving this message from the Lord and then delivering this message, addressing the people of God directly. So what we don't get is this prophet being sent to the nations to send this message to the nations of repentance and faith. Instead, in the book of Habakkuk, what we get are three chapters of one man's personal wrestling with the Lord. Three chapters of one man's earnest prayers and God's honest answers. And it's through these prayers that we see a major change occur in the book. Now, crucially, 
What changes in the book of Habakkuk is not Habakkuk's circumstances. We have no indication that anything in his outward circumstances change, changes from chapter 1 to chapter 3. So what changes in the book of Habakkuk? Well, he does. The change in this book is inward. It's not circumstantial, it's spiritual. I think we see this in the two prayers that bookend this book of Habakkuk. Prayers which could not be more different. So Habakkuk begins with this book with a troubled, panicked, unnerved prophet. Listen to this first prayer in the book of Habakkuk. Verse 1 says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes, goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. How would you, how would you describe the man Habakkuk here? I mean, you can, you can feel his anxiety, can't you? It's, it's palpable. It's relatable, frankly. But flip over. Now listen to the end of this book, chapter 3, Habakkuk's final prayer. And just notice if anything's changed. Chapter 3, the end of verse 16. I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. You can see it, can't you? In this short book, the prophet Habakkuk, he moves from praying in a great panic to praying with great peace. By the end, he's a picture of a, a settled, joyful, waiting, expectant, faithful, God-fearing prophet. I wonder if anybody feels that same need here this morning. That, I wonder if you feel that need of moving from panic to peace. Well, how does this happen? How did it happen with Habakkuk? Well, as I see it, it's actually really simple. In the beginning of the book, Habakkuk prays only according to what he sees in the world. But by the end of the book, notice that he's praying not just according to what he has seen in the world, but according to what he, what he has heard from the Lord. In other words, in three short chapters, we see Habakkuk move from living by sight to living according to the power that the Lord has given him. That is the power to hear and believe God. And so he moves from panic to peace. How much of your life is being lived in panic? How much of your life is being lived in anxiety, in restlessness, in being consumed on what you see in the world and in the news? So you are a believer. You, you love the Lord. You fear God. But you look and see the world as it is around you. And frankly, it's rather terrifying. So you turn to the Lord and you pray 
You pray genuinely. You pray earnestly. You pray honestly. You say, Lord, I see these awful things, and I know you see them too, so, so why don't you do anything about it? If that's you, and let's be frank, that's all of us to one degree or another, then here's what we need to see, is that we are not the first to pray these prayers. The Lord, in his kindness, has given us this short, relatable, prophetic book in which Habakkuk prays these same prayers to this same God from this same fallen world. And it's a book in which the Lord answers him with one amazing, life-altering truth. A truth that is the same for us as it was for Habakkuk. And I'm going to tell you what that truth is, all right? Here it is. Main point for this morning. I think the main point of the book. And that is that you and I have been created and designed by God to live by faith. You and I have been created and designed by God to live by faith. You are not designed to live and pray merely according to what you see in the world. You are designed to live and pray according to what you have heard from the Lord. This hearing by faith, it is a God-given superpower to his people. What this book does, one of the things that this book does, is it paints two pictures for us. And those are just going to be our two points this morning as we work through some of this book. First, it gives us a picture of living and praying by sight. And second, it gives us a picture of living and praying by faith. So we're not covering, even reading every single verse here this morning. Maybe we'll come back to it. But I want us to leave with a healthy understanding of this one main point. So let's take these two points in turn. So first, the book gives us a picture of living and praying by sight. Habakkuk's first prayer, it's, it's honest and relatable, isn't it? It's genuine. The book starts off with a God-fearing man crying out to his God. And interestingly, he's, he's nowhere rebuked for the way he prays in this book. But notice Habakkuk's prayers in these first chapters, they're consumed by, they're filled with the things that he can see. You see that again? Look back again at verse 2. Oh Lord, how long should I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? While, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. And justice, justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is praying and he says, Lord, everywhere I turn my eyes, I see a new terrible reality. So I turn this way, and I see violence. I turn that way, I see wrongdoing. I turn on this cable news channel, and I see destruction. I turn on this YouTube channel, and I see strife. I see that there are laws on the books, but they're worthless. People are supposed to be held to account, but what I see is that justice is a joke. I told you this was a relatable book. Habakkuk looks out at the world as it is in all its fallenness 
And quite simply, he's a man who's overwhelmed. I wonder if you've felt that. I'm sure that you have. And I'm sure that you've done as Habakkuk has, like a Christian is supposed to do. You've turned these mornings, you've turned these lamentations into prayers. But if you're honest, it may be that the thing that's bothered you most is that as you pray and as you lament and as you ask, you know, because of what you know about God, you know that he sees what you see, but he's not doing anything about it. This is what Habakkuk felt. You see that in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly at wrong? Look over at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So you can, you can tell what Habakkuk is feeling as he prays. Maybe it's something that you felt before. He feels like he cares more about all this injustice than the Lord does. Because the Lord apparently isn't doing a single thing about it. It's at this point in the book that the Lord himself speaks up. And he, he speaks up to inform Habakkuk that contrary to what he can see, the Lord is actually doing. The Lord is actually doing. Look at verses 5 through 11. So here it's as if the Lord kind of looks at Habakkuk and he says, all right, man, you want to live and pray and relate to me based on what you can see? The Lord says, well, take a closer look and I'll, I'll let you see more than you bargained for. Verse 5, he says, look, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. All right, this is a rousing verse, isn't it? Look among the nations, wonder, be astounded. The Lord is doing something that we can't even believe. I mean, this is a, the missions mantra of all mantras, isn't it? If, if only it was. But that's not the work the Lord has in mind here in Habakkuk. He goes on, look at verse six. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Do you ever, do you ever get the sense that maybe one reason why the Lord doesn't let us see every little thing that he's doing is that we simply couldn't handle it if he did? So here Habakkuk wants to see more of what exactly the Lord is doing. So the Lord, the Lord shows him. And you know what Habakkuk sees? He sees that the, the Lord is lifting up in his hand a foreign, evil nation as an instrument of discipline against the sin and injustice of his own people. That's this work that he's doing that Habakkuk wanted to see. The prophet's you know, all throughout the prophets, they use this poetic language to paint pictures for us. And the picture that God shows Habakkuk about what, what God is doing is not comforting to Habakkuk, to say the least. Look there in verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They have their own sense of justice, he says. Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence 
all their faces forward. They gather, gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. This is not a mantra of salvation for the nations. This is a mantra of discipline towards God's own people. And Habakkuk sees it, and once again, he's confounded. Look at verse 12. He prays again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now think about this. As he prays and as he laments, is Habakkuk wrong in the way that he's conceiving God? It doesn't seem so to me. He's saying what's true. God is eternal. God is holy. And is Habakkuk wrong in the way that he's praying? It doesn't seem so to me. He's, he's lamenting. And we know from other books of the Bible that lament is good and right. It's biblical. But one thing that we learn from this book is that lament isn't meant to be an end of itself. Lament is supposed to lead to something more, namely faith in God's future promises. So this is the, this is the tension in the book of Habakkuk. So Habakkuk has no problem with a high view of God. He, he knows the creeds. He knows that the Lord is the king and protector of his people. Now, what Habakkuk is having trouble with is reconciling this high view of God with the fact that this amazing God is allowing, even orchestrating these devastatingly difficult things for his people. Verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? Remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. He goes on. He, he compares God's people to a, a school of fish. And their enemies are like skilled fishermen. Look there in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, that is the enemy of God's people. He sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This this is, this is wrestling in prayer, isn't it? God, if you, if you really are the just king, then how could, how could you possibly use such an unjust people for your purposes? God, tell me, how are your innocent people better off with this plan that you're letting me see? It certainly doesn't feel like you value human life. Do your people just exist to satisfy the sinful appetite of the wicked? God, how is this good? It really comes down to this question. If you, Lord, if you really are God, then how come we see what we see down here? Have you ever felt that question in your bones? 
Have you ever looked at God's goodness on the one hand and his perplexing handling of evil on the other hand and thought, what what in the world is going on? Have you ever felt that what you know to be true about the Lord just doesn't line up with what you're seeing with your own eyes? maybe Maybe you're there right now. Habakkuk was certainly there. And having kind of lodged the second protest, the prophet positions himself for God's reply. Look there, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself in the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Here at the beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk is still insistent on seeing, isn't he? You see that? He says, I've said my piece, now I'll take my spot where? At my watchtower, and I will look for an answer. Habakkuk is still desirous for God to show him exactly what's going on. He says, show me, I'm looking, I'm taking my stand in this watchtower to look out to the horizon to see some kind of answer. Show me some facts to counteract and explain these awful facts that I'm seeing on the ground. So Habakkuk is is praying. He's praying genuinely. He's praying earnestly, truthfully. But he's praying by sight. And it's at this point that the Lord answers a second time. And he's inviting Habakkuk and us into a a different, a deeper, and quite honestly, a a more difficult way to pray. Chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. It's here that this book gives us a, a second picture and a, another option to living by sight. So number two then, it gives us a picture of living and praying by faith. A picture of living and praying by faith. So here in chapter two, interestingly, the Lord doesn't deny Habakkuk a vision. But notice the vision is capturing things to happen when? Not now, but sometime in the future. So you can see there in verse three. He assures Habakkuk there is a plan, a plan that he will eventually see come to fruition, but that plan has a specific, determined, appointed time. And the Lord is making it clear all throughout this book that the determiner of that good timing is not Habakkuk. It's the Lord. So your role, Habakkuk, and your role, Christian, you should hear this, we should hear this, Your role is not to make God's plans for him. Your role is to wait for his plans. Your role, Christian, is not to think of and plan what it is God should do. Your role is to reflect on and wait for what God has already revealed that he will do. And here's the reality, and I just love this when it comes to helping us in our own lives. The reality, clearly expressed by the Lord himself, is that it will seem to us like the plans of the Lord are slow. Is that comforting to you? Look at verse 3. If it seems slow, wait for it. 
Christian, this may be helpful for you. You should expect, you should expect to have to wait for the Lord. To be a person in the world, to be a person who doesn't know the Lord, is to be a person who has to have everything now. A person who must insist on having everything here and now and immediately and instantly and soon. But that's simply not what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a waiting person. If you find yourself waiting on the Lord's promises right now, that is not a problem. That's on purpose. Waiting is the reality of the believer. And to be a waiting person requires being a person who lives not by what you see in the world, but by faith in what you've heard from the Lord. This is the point of verse 4. Behold, he says, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Verse 4, it, it kind of reads like a, like a proverb stuck right in the middle of this book of prophecy. And it's a verse that's quoted three times, maybe you recognize it, three times in the New Testament because of the simple, pithy, profound way that it sums up the basic reality, the basic decision that all of us have in life. So that this is it. This is the application for Habakkuk, the application for Israel, the application for the church, the application for you. This is it. Here's what you have to decide. You can be a person who lives puffed up by sight, making yourself the one who sees all reality, or you can live righteously as a person who lives by faith. Those are the two options. So think about this. So in the context of Habakkuk, the example that God gives of this puffed up soul is the wicked nation that he's using as an instrument of justice here, right? So as verse five goes on to say, the best thing to compare this type of person to, it's, it's wine that deceives, it's, it's death that consumes. This is the person, this is the, the same nation that God himself is using in his hand as an instrument of justice. It's the same nation that God is holding up as an arrogant nation who lives by sight, not by faith. Verse five, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. When you live without faith, when you live only by sight, your entire life is reduced to a single-minded effort of self-concern, of self-preservation. You're reduced to compiling to yourself whatever it is you see and desire because without faith, that's all there is. What I can see. So again, that's why here in God's providence in Habakkuk, this foreign nation is held up not only as God's instrument of judgment, but at the same time, the recipient of judgment because of the wicked, the faithless way in which they live. This nation that he's using, the, this foreign people that are coming as judgment on his people, they don't know God. They don't desire him. They don't wait for him. They don't believe his promises. They don't have any kind of trust that Lord, the Lord God Almighty is working some kind of plan. So what do they do? The faithful, they, they're never at rest. Their greed is as wide as death. That is to say, it never gets enough. Death is insatiable, takes everyone. 
This is the person who lives without faith. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like to live by sight. Unending restlessness. Insatiable greed. It's, it's living with a, a mouth as wide open as death. Consuming everything, but it's never satisfied. You know, maybe you're here this morning, and this verse 5, maybe this is the place to which you've been brought as you've lived by sight. So maybe you're a person here who has accumulated much but what you're realizing is it's actually still not enough. So what you're doing is you're working feverishly for more. So maybe this felt need for more, maybe what you're finding is that you've, you've needed more things, you've needed more security. Maybe, maybe it's even led you to do some things that you'd never imagined you'd do. You've taken advantage of people, maybe you've taken advantage of systems, of loopholes, the employer, the government, whoever's not paying close enough attention to you in that area. This is living by sight. There's no one to take care of you. You gotta take care of yourself. This living is a restless living. It's a panicky living. But here's the good news. The Lord in his kindness, he holds out a better way for us. You don't have to live based on what you see and what you feel. You can live based on what you've heard and what you've believed from the Lord. Is this, isn't this the whole beauty of belonging to Christ? Think of this, Christian. You have been, think of the reality of what it means to be a Christian. It means that you have been united by faith to, to the one who has come and bled and died and rose again and ascended to glory. Christian, that's what you've heard. That's the message of salvation that you've heard. That's the message that you know. That's the message that you believe. And the great invitation of this book, the great invitation of the whole Bible, the message of the gospel, is that you, Christian, righteous one in Christ, you can, you must actually, you must live by that same faith through which you've been united to Christ. The righteous lives by his faith. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You can live by faith, Christian. You do not have to be tossed and turned by everything that you see here on the ground. God has made promises to you in Christ, and you can bank on them. They can change the way you live. And here in the second half of the book of Habakkuk, we'll take this more quickly. The Lord reminds him, the Lord reminds us, of two very precious promises by which you must live as a Christian. So here are two promises. Christian, here are two promises to bank on this morning as you live by faith. One, the wicked will be judged. And two, the righteous will be saved. Remember Habakkuk's overarching concern in chapter one, as he looked out over the horrific conditions and fallenness of the world, his concern was what, back in chapter one? Justice is a joke, it's broken. We all feel this, I know we do. The entire world feels this in a very particular way right now. It seems like everything is upside down. The wicked seem to flourish, the righteous perish. Any expectation of justice being upheld, it feels dead, it feels gone, it feels hopeless. Well, this book is here to get these promises into your ears and into your heart. That justice is not a joke. 
the Lord is not asleep at the wheel in this world. Make no mistake, the wicked will be judged. This is the Lord's whole point. If you look there in chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, we're not going to take the time to go through those and read them now. Maybe that's another sermon. But the point seems to be pretty clear. In these verses, chapter 2, verse 6 through 20, the Lord offers five woes to the wicked. If you just look there, you can see them. Verse 6, verse 9, woe to him. Verse 12, verse 15, Verse 19, woe, woe, woe. A woe here is, it's a common word used as a cry of mourning at funerals in that culture. The point, Habakkuk, church, people who long for justice in the world but see none, the point is, you should know this, the funeral song of the wicked has already begun. The wicked will be judged. The Lord's looking at the world, at, to us, in the world in which we live. And he says, I know, the Lord knows what the world looks like down here. He does. And he's saying, you have to trust me. Nothing is happening in this world, even when, even where my people are terribly oppressed, nothing is happening that is outside of my control. Those who live puffed up in unrighteous lives, who are wicked and rebellious, who walk without faith, they will be met with justice in the end. And church, maybe that's one promise that you need to hear and hold on to by faith today. That vengeance really does belong to the Lord. So maybe you're a person who's been taken advantage of. So maybe you're a person who's been discriminated against in some way. Uh, maybe you're a person who's been cheated out of something valuable in some way. The reality is that because of the promise, the promise of God's coming just judgment, you are free from the burden of repaying. You can live by faith. You who have been declared to be righteous by your faithful union to Christ, you can leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. You know, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're the one doing the cheating. Maybe you're the one taking advantage of others, or maybe you're the one discriminating. You need to hear this this morning as well, that there is a holy God who has promised to come and judge the world very soon, sooner than you would think. And on that day, everyone who has not repented and placed their faith in Christ as the one who has taken the penalty of their sins on themselves, you'll be on the hook for that sin. So let me just encourage you. You don't have to walk by faith anymore. Or excuse me, you don't have to walk by sight anymore. You can turn and walk by faith and live, truly live. You can turn and be justified by faith. You who are a guilty sinner, you can come to Christ and be declared righteous. You can live by faith. That's the second promise which you, which we all need to hear and believe today. So promise number one, the, the wicked will be judged. That will happen. But just as true is that the righteous will be saved. The righteous will be saved. Look there at chapter three. 
Here we have one final prayer of Habakkuk. It's a, it's a psalm, really. You see that? It's almost like it's this psalm that's been tacked on to the end of this book, praying, playing a very specific purpose, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. I think that's the tune we sang to earlier, Shigianoth. It's in this psalm, chapter 3 of Habakkuk, where we see that he's come full circle in his way of living and praying. So again, listen to the way in which he's changed. Chapter 3, look at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, Habakkuk has made this turn in the book. Here in chapter 3, the prophet's no longer basing these prayers merely on what he's seeing in the world. He's praying based on what he's heard from the Lord. And this makes all the difference in the content and the faith of his prayers, doesn't it? In chapter 1, what Habakkuk saw was an evil army marching through the world to bring destruction on God's people. But here in chapter 3, what Habakkuk hears is a different march. That is the march of God himself coming through the earth to save his people. So listen to the description in chapter 3. Notice how this picture harkens back to the work of God and salvation that he's already done, particularly in the, in the exodus of his people. Chapter 3, verse 3. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. That is, he's come from the south, the direction of Sinai, where his people received the law. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of praise. His brightness was like a light. Rays flashed from his hand, There's, and there his, he veiled his power. The poetic picture here in chapter 3, it's the, the awesome sight of God coming up in his power from Sinai. And what, does he, what is he bringing with him as he comes? Verse 5, before him went pestilence, plague followed at his heels. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the mountains. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So the Lord is coming. Habakkuk hears of his coming. He looks back even as he looks ahead. Plague follows the Lord to consume his enemies. Mountains are scattered as he goes. Hills sink. And why is this? Verse 12. You, Lord, you march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. So think about this. The, have, the, have the overwhelming things that Habakkuk saw in the world, have they gone away? No, it's just that they're now being eclipsed by the report of an even more overwhelming, more awesome reality. And the reality is simply this. God... The God who saves his people out of the wickedness of the world is coming to save them again. This is what we've heard he's done, and this is what we believe he will do. This is faith. You see, faith in a sense, so if you're wondering what does it look like to live by faith as a Christian, faith in a sense is simply praise for the saving, the saving history of God to repeat itself. It listens to what God has done, and it listens for God's promise to do it again, fully and ultimately, and it places its faith in that God who makes those promises. That's living by faith. So church, 
Do you, do you tune this gift of hearing? Do you tune this gift to the melody of God's promises? Do you have in your mind the promises of God? Do you know them? Do you think on them? Do you remember them? Do you pray them? What we see in Habakkuk and all over the Bible is that the wickedness of the world, listen, it may be new to you. You may be seeing new manifestations of wickedness that are terrifying. Of course you are. What we see is that these are no, these are nothing new to the Lord. The Lord's been dealing with this kind of wickedness for a long time. And here's the thing. The Lord has always made it his responsibility to come down, to intervene, and to confront the sin, and to bring his people back to himself. And this church, he has done most recently and most climactically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the eternal, perfect son of God, has come down. He has entered this very wicked, terrifying world in which we live. And he has defeated sin. He is now leading a new march, a new exodus out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And though we obviously, of course, we still dwell in the, in the land of the dead and the dying, the promise is that just as he came a first time, Jesus is coming again to do away with all sin and wickedness once and for all. He's going to usher in a new creation, blessed by his very continual presence forever. That's what's coming. Those who are righteous through faith in him will be saved in that day. So listen, if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, this is what this is what the gospel invites you into today. Listen, this world, this world is a fallen mess. Your heart is a fallen mess. That inward struggle that you feel and you battle every day, that's just called sin. That's what we see in the Bible. But there is a God who made a way for you to come out of that into salvation, out of shame into freedom, out of guilt into righteousness. The Lord Jesus has come into this kind of world to set captives free, and he will come again to take us with him to live forever. And if, and if when you get this, once your eternal security is a settled matter, you pray differently. Though, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Do you see this? This is the whole point. We're wrapping up here. Habakkuk once prayed what? He once legitimately, honestly, earnestly, his prayer was how long? How long? But what does he pray now? Even if. Even if. 
even if the worst things in life were to actually happen and keep happening and keep happening, even if there's not one blossom on the figs, there's not one fruit on the vine, no produce, no flock, no herd. You see what he's saying? Even if he sees no hope, he sees no provision, he sees no way to move forward, then what? What will he do? He will rejoice in the God whose voice he's heard and in whose name he has found eternal salvation. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord, not what I see. God the Lord is my strength. You see what he's saying? The fallen world, it could take Habakkuk's health. It could take his money. It could take his property. It could take his provision. It could take his vocation. But it could not touch his salvation. It could not touch his joy. Christian, the Lord has given you a very particular power. And that is the power to hear and believe God. The question is, has your ability to hear and believe his promises, has it transformed the way that you endure hardships in the world as it is? Have your how long prayers, have they ever turned to even if prayers? Okay, God, even if, even if I stay sick, even if I stay unemployed, even if I stay poor, even if I stay single, even if I stay in this hard marriage, I will, by faith, take joy in the one most precious thing that can never be taken away for all eternity, and that is the God of my salvation. Even if my life is an absolute wreck, an absolute wreck until I see his face, I will rejoice because Christ is mine. In this fallen world, church, that is a superpower. And it belongs only to those who live by faith in what they have heard. As a congregation, one of the most basic steps of faith one of the most basic pieces of application to living by what we've heard is to respond every week together in coming to the Lord's table where we have this temporal picture of God's eternal promise that we will one day commune with him forever. So now the call, your first piece of application, Christian, is that though the fig tree should not blossom, there's no fruit on the vines, there's no flocks or herds, they're all gone. Your application is to come and rejoice in the God who has given you his salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that by your spirit, you would give us ears that are tuned to your promises that you would give us faith to believe more readily that our eternal salvation is settled. And that because of that, anything that we face in this fallen world is endurable by the power of Christ in us. We do pray for more faith. 
We pray for those particularly who are struggling in very real, particular ways uh, during this season. And we pray that our faith would increase as individuals, as a church. We pray this for the glory of Christ and the good of your church. Amen.